All right. Good singing. Thank you. Um, have you now take your Bibles, if you would. And I apologize that you just get to see my face so much up here today. But uh, I do appreciate those who have jumped in to be a part. And uh, I want us to, just in considering even that idea of amazing grace, what a thing it is that we have been saved out of the punishment we deserve, but also saved to a new life in Christ. And I want us to consider a phrase this morning that comes out of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is the phrase, such were some of you. Such were some of you. And I find it to be a a phrase filled with incredible hope. Well, let me go ahead and read uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little bit of context. We'll look at verses 9 through 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 12. And maybe to say a little bit before I read this is that uh, this is, of course, before you've got over five chapters of Paul addressing the church at Corinth. Um, And and they've got issues in Corinth. Oddly, I think they're, they're a little bit like we're getting to be in our day, in our culture overall. Uh, He's had to deal with them with issues of boasting and bragging, issues of being divided and and competing with one another within the church. Uh, He's had to deal with sexual immorality in the church already in the book. And right before this, he deals with church members who have had disputes with each other and taken each other to court before unbelievers. Those, those are some of the things, just the things that he's dealt with in the first four or five chapters, plus a little bit more. And so as he enters into this, he has a call, a call for them to remember who they are. So follow along with me, if you would. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 12, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And So we find out here, Corinth being kind of the example, but the church is full of people who were characterized by being sinful. In fact, you can't be a member of Jesus' church, his gathering of people, unless you're a confessed sinner. If 
you come to Jesus and say, I've got no problems, I've got no sin, there's, there's not a place there, really, because the whole point is that he came to save who? Sinners, right? So for one thing, Scripture is very clear. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And there is none righteous, no, not one. So the only ones who are candidates to be saved by Jesus and become part of his church are, are people who have been sinners. But if you, think, if you don't think you fit that category, then I, I would propose to you that you've believed a lie. And until you change your mind about that, I can't offer you hope. The place where hope begins is by recognizing I'm a sinner in need of great help. And so in the church, we are former sinners, Paul says. Such were some of you, right? Not because we never sin now, but we are no longer identified by that sin. And we have the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit to choose not to sin. We have the power to not sin. And the great thing about this phrase, and such were some of you, is it puts our identity as sinners in the past. That's not the label I have to wear anymore. Fornicator, adulterer, liar, thief. What, he's going to get into those details. But that's not who I am, even if that's what I was called in my life before. And he says, notice he says here to the Corinthians, do you not know? Here's something you ought to know, and so I'm going to remind you, but I'm going to ask, don't, don't you know this already? It seems like the people of, at Corinth had forgotten this key truth about being believers. They need to remember that Jesus has rescued them from their sin, out of their sin, not just its penalty, but having to be down there and wallowing in it, and, and stuck in it, and enslaved by it. He also says, do you not know that the children of God are the ones who inherit God's kingdom? Well, what, 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 uh, what is true about someone's child? Well, they reflect their parents, right? You know, we go around and we, we look at these babies and we say, oh, look at that. She looks just like her mom. Oh, he does that just like his dad, you know, or, or both, you know, as they, as they grow up. The same thing is true of children of God. If you are a child of God, you begin to reflect his character if you have been born again, born into a new life and become his child. And so there's a sense in which can you claim to be an heir of God's kingdom, being able to go into what he has prepared for us in heaven, or even go into, in a sense, this king, the kingdom on earth is made up of believers, right? Coming together. Can you claim to be part of that if, if, you, if you don't reflect the character of the one who saved you at all? We should look like God, right? He's reminding the, the Corinthians, and we need that reminder, don't we? We used to be those things, but now... We are in Christ. Now we are children of God. And so he says here, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived in the middle of verse 9. And then he starts to list 
some things that would characterize people who aren't heirs, who don't inherit. It's children who inherit, right? And so there's, there's this big lie being pushed on you that says that, that knowing Jesus is just a religious thing. You, you have the box, and you show up, you know, here's the box, in the building every once in a while, right? You hear a sermon. Then you go out and you live your life any old way that you've been doing all your life. And Paul's saying, hold on. Don't be deceived. People who are characterized by those patterns of sin aren't those who are inheriting. Not because they aren't doing good enough, because we can't do good enough. It's, it's a reflection of whether you have been born again, born anew into a new life. Because Jesus saves us so much better than just getting us out of hell. Jesus saves us toward righteousness now. And he transforms us. And so he says, don't be deceived. These different people, people who are categorized, named by, identified these ways, won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives us a list, right? It's not a pretty list. But he says, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. And he deals with, first of all, he's got uh, some terms that have to do with, with sexual sins. Adulterers, fornicators, effeminate, homosexuals. He says, your, 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 your father in heaven created man and woman. He created them to be joined into a marriage union together. Within that marriage union, he gave a special tool to help bond them together and to create children called sexual union. He made it with a specific purpose and in order to bless. But he said, if you take that and instead say, this is really just all about me having pleasure. And there's a great deal of pleasure in it, isn't there? But if we take it out of order and say, this is a gift from God to bond marriage. Or no, it's my, it's just my pleasure. It's just what I like. It's what I want. It's what I want to feel. Oh, now it starts to crumble and break, right? We're no longer characterized by our father, our creator. And that's a real easy one to fall into. He talks about idolaters which means worshiping or serving anything or anyone instead of God, including yourself. And I think that's probably the number one idol is our own selves. I live to get what I want. I live to do what I want. I live to make me happy regardless of what it does to others. I live to meet my goals. That's really just a worship of self rather than saying, Okay, God, you made me. What, what do you have for me? What is it you're going to use me for? What do you know is best for my life? And you might ask yourself some questions to find out where idolatry comes up in your life. Ask yourself, where do you go for help? Where do you go for help? If it's not Jesus, if it's not God, you have another Savior. You have another God who rescues you. But God says, I am, I'm your only helper, ultimately. Now, he uses people. 
He uses other things, but he ultimately is the helper. And so when, I, when things go wrong, what do I run to? Ah, if it's not God, it could be idolatry is something that's in your life. And frankly, I think it's in all of us. And we're working on, if we know Christ, taking that out and allowing him to change us. But what, what do you do? Here's another good question to find out if idolatry is in there. What do you want so much that you're willing to sin in order to get it? What do you want so much that you're willing to sin in order to get it? That's going to give you another point to an, era, to, to an idol. That's something you, you value so much it controls you. It tells you what to do. It is what you live for, you could say. He points out sins of greed that we can be characterized by, right? Being covetous. It's just a desire for more is literally what that word means. I always want more. Swindlers and thieves, well, that's just how you keep trying to get more. Swindlers try to trick people out of things. Thieves take it for themselves. But it, but it's, it has to do with a heart that's not content with, with, with what God has given us. But it's always, what's the next thing I can get for me? What's the next way I can have more? And it doesn't have to be money or possessions. It can be the esteem of others. It can be the opinion of others. I I want them to like me more. I want to have more influence. I want to have more power. And we can swindle our way to those, right? We can steal things that weren't ever intended for us. And then there are sins that have to do with substances that can control us. A slavery to to substances. The word here is used as drunkards, so it has to do with alcohol. But really, it applies to any kind of substance that you run to for a savior. When things don't go wrong, oh, I need a drink. I need this drug. I need that thing that makes me feel better. That's where I run when life is hard. And they're false saviors. So we, we don't want to be what our, our culture would say, don't be self-medicating. That's not what it is anyway. It's running to a false savior. Because these will not help you. These will not make you better. But in fact, they will enslave you They will destroy you, and they will always require more and more of that substance to do less and less for you. They're they're bad saviors. They don't really save. In fact, they enslave. And he talks about sins of the tongue that you might be characterized by. He uses the word revilers. But a reviler really is a person whose God is their tongue and their ability to use it as a weapon. A person who is a reviler often gets what they want in the long run by tearing down others, by tearing others apart if they get in their way verbally. So don't you dare cross me or I'll take you down with my tongue. And a person who is a reviler has great power to bully people into getting them what they think they deserve or even sometimes what they think this is right, but they use the power of their tongue to get it rather than godly ways, and trusting God to bring it about. And sadly, rarely do they have great friendships or great relationships, and they are denying the real power of God. So Paul gives us a list 
This is what you might be labeled as because of the patterns of sin in your life. He could have gone on and on, couldn't he? And so when he says, such were some of you, well, I, I, I honestly think we might all find ourselves in that list. But he could have listed some more that you would have more readily identified with. But he wants to remind believers there that that's not who you are anymore. Even if that was the label that you had, remember, by Christ saving you, that isn't your identity any longer. So you ask yourself, who are you? Who are you? The world around us is asking that question a lot, aren't they? We like to put labels on ourselves and on people. And everyone is busy doing that. Well, I am. What is your sexual preference? That's now your identity. I am. You put your occupation on you. That's your identity. I am your nationality or your culture. You say, this is my identity. But many of our labels do, in fact, connect first to things we don't have control over. I am white. I am black. I am Asian. No control over that, right? But is that our identity? Or is that just a characteristic that God gave us? Those things don't really matter when it comes down to it. But many of those labels that do have to do with our preferred sins and our patterns of sins, Paul's addressing those. If that has become your identity, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to save you from that sin and to take care of that. And that's what he says. says, says but, did you, know, did you notice that great that little word there? If such were some of you, but, that's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Because God will lay out, here's your problem. He says, but, there is hope. But, things can change. It's amazing the things that he, he does for us. And so what happened to these people? Is there hope that we can escape these identity labels and sad identities? Because if they were identified by these, how did that change? Can we get out of this trap that we're in with our sin that we keep coming back to again and again, even when our heart cries out, oh, I want to stop this. Oh, I want a way out. Can we get out of the trap? Paul says, that is what we were, but. But what? Well, let's look at the scripture. Such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed. So the guilt, the shame, the contamination that sin brings have been taken away when you entrust yourself to Jesus. He washes it all off. And the Greek tense used in this word in the original uh, writings indicates that this is a cleansing because of an act of faith in submitting yourself to what Jesus offers. So it's kind of worded odd, so that most translations don't word it this way, but really, you washed yourself. You say, oh, wait a minute, I thought we had to have Jesus. We do. It's In essence, you stepped into Jesus' washtub. You let Jesus do the washing. You let Jesus clean you up. And we're going to find out in a minute, it's not just a cleaning on the outside, but it's a cleaning that makes you brand new. 
So you were washed. The sin, the guilt, the shame, he takes it all away. You can go back and, and wallow in it if you want to, but you don't have to anymore. But you were sanctified. Now, there's a great theological word, right? At basis, it just means you were set apart for God's purposes alone. You entered into this relationship with Jesus, and now your life is focused on his purposes for you. Don't worry, they're excellent purposes that are so good for you. Don't be afraid. He loved you enough to die for you, but he set you apart. So that's what happens when you entrust yourself to Jesus. Now you are on his team, going his way. You become his and you belong to him. And then he begins, there's another way that this word sanctified is used, it's closely tied to it, but he begins the process of changing your thoughts, your actions, and your words to match up with the fact that you have been set aside for him. You begin to look like him, right? You begin to think his thoughts and do the things that he knows are best for you because he made you and loves you deeply. It might be a little bit, for those of you who are sports fans, like being drafted into the NFL, a little bit. But a player you know, gets that invitation, right? They call out his name, this such and such a team, picks this guy. An invitation has gone out to you from Jesus. He said, you're a sinner. I have died for you. I call you to myself. Now, if that college player celebrates with his family, his name's been chosen, then he just goes home and sits. What good does it do him? None at all, right? If he doesn't call them back, if he doesn't go and sign a contract, he sits at home and he is not a football player in the National Football League. That's what salvation is. It's you saying, Jesus, you, you died for my sin to take all that away. You called me, but eh, I'll, I'll stay here. I like it here better. Now, we have to engage. It's an act of the will that's required there of you saying, yes, Jesus, I entrust myself to you that you will do these things. He doesn't, doesn't force us against our will. And then the great thing, here's where the sanctification parallel is. Like you know, the football player, they send him out with a coach, right? And the coach directs him, here, you do these exercises, you, do, you be here for this practice, you do those things, and you will become the kind of player that can wear, put the name of your favorite team on there. Right? You are now identified. You are, uh, I'm not going to name any teams, <laughs> get myself in trouble. Same with Jesus. He says, you, you get to wear my name on you. You identify with me. You are in me. Now you belong to me. My name is on your jersey. And he keeps on working with you and working with you and working with you until you get rid of those things that characterized you before you came to him. And the great thing about it is, is the NFL might cut you from the team. Jesus never will because it's about his amazing grace, not about how good you do. You mess up, guess what? He's going to come after you. Say, come on back. I got some new drills for you. Come on back. Let's get this relationship on track. And he's never going to trade you to another team, right? You are on his team now into eternity. You were sanctified. And Paul wants 
the Corinthians, and he wants you to remember that. You've been set aside for his purposes, and you have been justified, he says. He says it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you come to him and all that he is. You come to him, and now it's about who he is, and that, in effect, takes his record of righteous deeds. Jesus, everything he did was good and right, correct? We were characterized by sin without him. He says, not only are you found innocent of all the things that you did do, but Jesus' good deeds are now put on your account. So when the Father looks at your account of sin, he says, ah, I only see the righteous deeds of Christ. When the day of judgment comes, he says, I have nothing against you. Why? Because Jesus did the hard work of paying for all of our sins. Then welcoming us into his presence, into his life, so that now all that was his is ours, including his righteousness and his good deeds. So that's really the key. It's in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also in the spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is there in our lives And he also, you could say, uh, argues on our behalf when it comes to judgment. Says, no, the righteousness of Christ belongs to this one, and I live in him. When we give ourselves to Jesus, his Holy Spirit comes and lives within us, and he's working on that process of sanctification, of being set apart. He's helping us to know him better. Let's turn to, to Titus chapter 3. And those of you who were here last week, you know we already looked, we just looked at this last week, but I want to go there again to see another way Paul describes this whole process. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. Maybe if we hear it sometimes just from a little bit different uh, angle. He says, For we also, Titus 3, 3 through 7, For we also once were foolish. Good thing to remember, huh? We were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating or hateful and hating one another. But, ah, there's that word again, right? That's what we were. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Here's good news. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We didn't, it's not because anybody was good enough. But according to his mercy, he chose to not give us what we deserve based on what Jesus did for us. By the washing, ah, there's that washing part again, right? By the washing of regeneration, and that word regeneration means new birth. So this washing that Paul is talking about both in Corinthians and here in Titus, this washing is talking about you become a whole new person. You are born again in the Spirit. You actually become, get a new heart, the Bible teaches us. So the washing of regeneration and renewal, that means being made new, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. Oh, here's that same idea, right? 
Ones who inherit according to the hope of eternal life. That's what he has in store for us as he makes us look and act and be identified with who he is. In other words, he gives us brand new identities that are based on new realities, not personal preferences, not based on self-chosen labels, not by what others think of you or even your own record. He gives us a new identity based on our relationship with Jesus and all he is. Those who believe in Jesus are now identified by that relationship. That is who they are, ones who are knowing Christ. By that name, that's why those who believe in Jesus came to be called what? Christians, right? That's now our our reality in Christ. And now like Paul says in verse 12, he goes on, and and 12 kind of starts a new section, but I wanted to include that because he he talks about, I'm I'm not under law. He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, it's not that Paul has, is something great, but his Savior is infinitely capable of keeping him from sinful, destructive, and enslaving patterns of life. He says, I'm not going to let any of my desires, any of those things that I run to, used to run to, have power over me anymore because the Holy Spirit within me gives me the power to not let that happen. Because God is on my side and he's changing me. Because I have the power now to to choose right. I have the power to choose right every time. Still don't yet, right? But that ability is there. And so he is choosing a life that matches his new identity, a person who entrusts himself to Jesus and his reality. He belongs to Jesus completely. He no longer checks a list of laws to how he will act or think. It's not a matter of, okay, well, here's, here's all the things that God said do, don't do. I understand that doesn't mean we ignore what is right and wrong, but it's how we go about it now. First of all, we know Jesus, and we have come into such a relationship with him that we say, the things that he doesn't want, I don't want either. The things that he does want, I'm going to learn to love and pursue them because I trust him. I know he knows what's really good. So I'm not walking around checking lists. I'm looking at the one who saved me, who loves me. And I won't be mastered by those things that, that keep me from him. I won't be under the control of those things and those people that aren't about doing what he wants. It's a whole new life, and it's a life of real freedom. Because all those things are also what are absolutely best for you and open up the best possibilities for your future. That's how good he is. So such were some of you. It gives us the right perspective. If you're a believer here today, take this seriously. It should humble you. There's no room for pride in being a Christian. Shouldn't go around, oh, look at how good I am. No, stop and remember. That list, you are in that list. But for the grace of God, but for his mercy, you were once a sinner according to who you were and the habits you chose. You're only different because of the mercy and grace of God. He drew you into a dependent relationship on himself by believing in Jesus. And now you have the ability by his strength 
to have a new, continuing, and always improving patterns that are good. And then, wonder of wonders, God brought us together, right? He brings us together as his body, as fellow believers in Christ to encourage and build each other up. That's one of the tools he uses for that sanctification process, right? That being set apart practically by the way that we live. And he even gives us then the privilege of letting others see this and understand it. We get to go out and say, hey, come in here. Come on in. You you have problems, right? Uh, Me too. But guess what? I found Jesus who changed me from the inside. And now he's freeing me day by day in in my patterns of life. So this morning, maybe you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus to be your Savior. Maybe you haven't entrusted him to to wash you, to set you apart for himself. himself. You haven't chose him, or you haven't haven't entrusted yourself for him to take you into his kingdom and live with him forever. Now's the perfect time to do that. And you you do it just right, you can just be right there where you're seated. You call out to Jesus. Jesus, save me. I am a sinner. I have been I have been in a pattern of sin. And I can't help myself. Please forgive me of my sin. Give me your righteousness. Give me your eternal future. That can be a hard life in this world full of sin, but it's a good one because we have a good savior.